Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'll chat with Professor Christopher Newfield about his book, The Great Mistake, How We Wrecked Public Universities and How We Can Fix Them, published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2016. Professor Newfield's study traces the decline of affordable, high-quality public universities in the United States through an examination of what he calls a devolutionary cycle of defunding of public higher education. The drive towards privatization, beginning in the 1980s, Newfield argues, has resulted in not just higher tuition for public universities, but a more fundamental shift in American society from thinking of higher education as a public good to a private good. Newfield's book is part of a growing interdisciplinary field called Critical University Studies, which tries to understand the changing role of the university within American society. Professor Newfield and I will talk for around 50 minutes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm here with uh, Christopher Newfield uh, to talk about his book, The Great Mistake. Um, Thanks for agreeing to uh, talk today, Professor Newfield. Well, it's great to be here. I wanted to start uh, with, with kind of a, a general question. Your book is, is part of the Johns Hopkins uh, University Critical University Studies series, and um, this is obviously a, a kind of growing interdisciplinary field. Um, I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about how you got uh, into this field and, and what, the, what the field is trying to do more generally. Well, I got into it because I was interested in uh, university dysfunction. <laughs> with largely budgets, but also governance. And so I wound up um, getting involved in my campus's academic senate. I've got access to some data that doesn't normally circulate about resources and got interested in, you know, allocation issues and uh, equity between STEM disciplines and non-STEM disciplines and so on. It just really went, went from there. I also, you know, I'm a, an, American studies person by training. I initially worked on pre-Civil War materials and always thought that the issues that literature raises about, you know, identity and subjectivity were connected to organizational issues that, uh, you know, could be studied better in other fields like sociology. So partly the background of combining disciplines and then also my experience in the university led me to get into this. And then critical university studies is a it's just that it's largely humanities people, historians, um, literary theorists, uh, anthropologists to some extent. And the, I think the thing that holds us all together is, uh, you know, an interest in, <laughs> I would say an interest in reform, an interest in, in really transforming the current hodgepodge funding structure and sort of social purposes of the university into something that's clearer and more available to more people. So it seems that the, the field it has embedded within it a sort of activist component to, to kind of advocate for these, these changes yes. in the funding structures. But I'm wondering also how it, how would you say it relates to traditional studies of, of higher education? Is it a corrective to traditional studies of the emergence of American higher ed or studies and uh, from this field, how does it interface there with scholars writing about higher ed? Well, it, uh, we build on them. You know, that that existing scholarship is really important, at least certainly to my work. In uh, history and sociology, it, you know, departments of uh, education or schools of education typically focus more on K through 12. And the people that are in those schools that work on higher ed tend to, you know, work with uh, their colleagues that work on that in other disciplines like history and so in particular. Economics also has been an important field, Uh, sometimes, you know, sort of misleadingly, but nonetheless, there's just a massive amount of work on the social effects of 
the economic effects of, uh, of higher education coming out of those places. So it's just, I mean, it, it, one of the nice things about it is I think is the ecumenical um, relationship to the disciplines that have already done deep dives into the issues. Great. Um, I want to now sort of get into the, the meat of the book. Um, and this is something I think uh, it's a concern in, in the field more generally. But one of the central um, changes that you kind of track throughout your book is the shift from from the, the, viewing the public university as a public good uh, to a private good. And I was hoping that you could explain what this change implies and how it relates more generally to ideas of, of, of the public good represented by other services uh, welfare services or other services that are part of our democracy. And can you also just kind of give a sense of it, the chronology of this, the shift? Yeah. Well, just to start with the last part first about other services, I think the best analogy is, is health and public health in particular. So, you know, COVID has made it clear that when we put all of our health resources into on the clinical side, and as it turns out, only 3% of our our medical spending on the public health side, we're vulnerable to uh, it, infectious diseases and then vulnerable to, you know, weakened institutions that are unable to do the, uh, the kind of the public activities, the collective activities that, that disease mitigation requires. So we don't have a testing setup that's uniform across the country and that's effective in most states. We don't have tracing uh, personnel. We need 300,000 people just to do that. And we don't have that. And we're, you know, we're months and months behind being able to build this because uh, a COVID suppression regime, because we uh, are basically starting from little to nothing, you know, in terms of what compared to what other countries have. Education is a kind of is similar in that it's, it has effects in common, right? So there's the individual benefit of knowing more things and then having higher levels of skill that allow for a greater personal income. But that's only a part of the total social impact of universities. Uh, what is also important are the, the collective benefits. So the fact that my neighbor's kids are better educated means that things that happen in the neighborhood are likely to go better in terms of whether it's conflict resolution, whether it's uh, average uh, income that the community has to support itself, uh, political decision-making. Can we all, all of us in the neighborhood read all of the ballot propositions and understand, you know, even the technical details of that and so on. Um, there's, you know, there's other uh, non-pecuniaries they're called or non-monetary benefits that are both individual, like longer lifespans, better health. Uh, and then on the other hand, um, collective ones, which include, uh, you know, just deliberative capacities, wider range of possibilities of enjoyment. I mean, there's quite a bit of work on the total benefits of universities going well beyond the wage benefit to any individuals. So the private, the, the public understanding of the, of the benefits of higher education include all of those things. The private understanding of it focuses almost entirely on a return on investment to your future wages compared to what you're paying into the university uh, in order to get that the, the degree. Um, so historically, uh, I think it, it really began to shift away from seeing universities as a kind of a general social benefit. You know, we wanted a we wanted to have a lot of teachers that they needed to go to the university. We wanted to have a well-educated population because we felt that generally speaking, that was good for both the economy and democracy. That was more or less taken for granted through the 60s and the 70s. And I think it began to fade in the 80s and really the 90s through um, fairly concerted um, political and intellectual attacks on the idea of public benefits. So one example is uh, the economist James Buchanan, who developed public choice theory. And the argument there was that anybody who's in uh, the public sector, you know, whether it's the Department of Motor Vehicles or um, the, the public health department in your county, who says that they're doing it um, for your benefit or the benefit of the public, 
is not telling the truth. They're really just trying to maximize their wage just like you are. So we should see anybody in the public sector as just uh, doing benefit maximization for them. There's no such thing as a public good that they're offering. They're just there getting a wage and getting a, you know, a fat public pension, et cetera. Um, that, so I think that damaged people's understanding of the, the way that public systems constitutes uh, the economic capabilities of a society. Uh, it's not just you know, individual talent or individual hard work. It's also you know, the social infrastructure, the general forms of knowledge that surpass anyone is the individual knowledge that allow every you know, thing just to go better rather than worse. And, you know, the 90s, the 2000s, you know, even when the Democrats were in the White House or when they had in the states where they had majorities in the legislature, they didn't they stopped having the vocabulary of non-monetary and non-private benefits. So it was easier to, you know, shift the payment burden onto the backs of students because it's like, well, if it's basically you're just college is about improving your personal wage, then why shouldn't you pay for that? Why should I pay for your wage gain? You know, if college is just about your wage gain, you know, we started it. So we thought selfishly and very short sightedly and also incorrectly because it's just even on, you know, in economic theory terms, say nothing of political theory, social and cultural theory. It's false that there are no spillover effects as economists say from your, individual degree gain to the society as a whole. So one of the reasons I wrote the book was to help all of us move towards a broader and more accurate understanding of the multiple benefits that universities have, both for the individuals that go to them and for the wider society, including all those folks that don't actually go to college at all. I want to to go back to, to something you said. You, you, you mentioned James Buchanan and public choice theory. And I think yeah, this touches on the, my kind of next question, which is: it seems t- to me that the kind of golden age of of the public university that that you seem to be tracing and its subsequent decline seems more or less to align in some ways with the, the kind of New Deal state, uh, right? I mean, and the decline coincides with the end of the Fordist economy and, and the rise of neoliberalism, and also the rise of modern conservatism with these kind of thinkers like James Buchanan and and many others who are kind of obsessed with this language of privatization and, and maximizing the kind of yields on investments uh, in a number of sectors. Uh, what, what, how would you compare? So obviously the, the new deal state brought many benefits with it. Um, but how, how do you see the, how would you compare the, the heyday of the, the public university with what's going on now in terms of the question of diversity, have universities become more diverse or, or less diverse in this way? Well, they, racially they become more diverse, and I think that that's the crux of the issue. Uh, I I think that a public choice theory and other forms of conservatism are deeply connected to white supremacism. Uh, and, it, you know, whether it's explicit or implicit and whether it's the strong version or the weak version, hardcore, softcore, the, th- there's a strong correlation between the, the willingness of the majority, the white majority, to spend public money on public services and the whiteness of those public services. So the, the most important thing that happened from you know the 90s on was the racial diversification of the student body and particularly in in public universities and it's you know I, I actually did the the calculation for the University of California in the in this state you know which is considered very progressive and very sort of not only diverse but also kind of anti-racist in the the uh, on the level of its political leadership, you know, the Democratic Party, which controls the state, is very uh, interested in access and inclusion as a, you know, the main thing that, that higher education should do. And yet, when you look at how the state actually spends its money, what you see is a direct correlation between the decline of per capita funding for the University of California and 
the share of the undergraduate population that is white. It's a lockstep relationship. I mean, I was actually quite surprised when, you know, when I, I graphed it out. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, the diversity and cheapness, you know, the more that um, your population is students of color, the less interested the white majority is in paying and helping to pay for that. And it's, you know, it's what people are talking about now, sort of post-George Floyd as a systemic racism. So it, it, independently of whether anybody intended it, which nobody really did, we got it. And I'm not trying to go back to the Golden Age University, which was too white and, you know, too uh, kind of intellectually confined in various ways. And, you know, among other things, what I would like to see is the is an investment per capita for a minority majority student body that is at least as good as what we did when we had a white majority student body. It's just, it for me, it's just a, a question of equity and racial equity in particular. And it also, to go back to the previous topic, is vastly more effective um, for the society as a whole. Um, this is slightly changing gears, but I think it's something that sort of it comes up throughout your book, which is you, know, you quote a lot of statements uh, by the University of California uh, administration, uh, university administration system. And, um, you know, these are statements that uh, are kind of written in corporatese um, and they have this empty language that that doesn't say very much. Uh, and I, I'm wondering how you see this is really how you would link like the kind of corporate language that universities now use. And we've seen universities kind of absorbing a lot of the language that's used in activist circles and making it part of their official kind of university corporatese. And this has been, I think, challenging in a lot of ways because universities are using this rhetoric, this progressive rhetoric, but not really doing very much. I mean, they're adopting. (laughs) I mean, I think these, this kind of, Linguist, these linguistic issues or the, the, the widespread use of corporatees does have very serious consequences on, on how we, on, on this kind of activist uh, front. And how do you, do you have any thoughts on, on that? Well, you're sort of talking about like uh, access, equity, and inclusion language, or yeah, how we're yeah. all like Black Lives Matter sympathetic. Exactly. I mean, we've seen uh, obviously m- many universities now have diversity and inclusion offices, and will issue statements on a routine basis that are kind of boiler boilerplate. Yeah. We don't tend to see much change, though. Uh, but there are a number of statements that are issued. So, do you see this as kind of a, a challenge or an unintended? perhaps consequence of this, of the universities latching onto this language to kind of absolve themselves in some ways of responsibility by just issuing these statements. Yeah, I just, I think it's a challenge for activists or, and just, you know, faculty, students and staff of, you know, whatever orientation to know more about the reality of the institution. I mean, I, I do think, I think your description of it is right. You know, they can, they've, feel like there's a lot of problems that just can be solved on the level of, of publicity, right? It's kind of, you know, universities are much more oriented towards messaging and public relations and maintaining an image management and, and boards of, of trustees are much more focused on doing reputation management and taking that away from faculty and uh, other members of the actual university community over which boards preside. But for me, the the counter to it is just understanding how things are actually working, what's happening in the workplace. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that I got involved in the Senate is I just I wanted to know how things worked behind the scenes because I didn't like what the effects were that I could see, you know, the visible effects. So you get to the back of the tapestry. And when that happens, I think it's activism is, is much more effective because it, you can deal with. The, de- the data that are available and get, you know, beyond just the words that people are saying. So, for example, you can show that the uh, in spite of the university's formal commitment to equity, diversity and inclusion, they're spending much less money per student on their diverse student body than they spent on their white student body 20 years ago. You know, public money. Um, for example, I mean, that's the kind of work that I do and other people are, you know, I've, I've, I've done this in the past and I'm probably going to end up doing it again, 
showing um, the relationship between public investment and diversity on the faculty level. You know, why is it that we don't have more um, black faculty? Well, one of the reasons is, we you know, we underinvested all the stages of the pipeline that would increase the share of African-American students that feel like getting a PhD and going to university work is an option for them. Right? I mean, we're, you know, black students are defaulting at five times the rate as white students on their student loans because of, um, you know, income to, to debt issues, then, you know, it's very unlikely that you're going to get a lot of black students to go on for and take on more loans to get a PhD. So <laughs> anyway, just, just getting into the nuts and bolts, I think, is a really good counter just to the, the power of the word that universities do have because of their control of the message and their control of their, the university's relation to the press. Something that I, I really appreciate about uh, your book is is the way you you do that a lot of that work for the reader. You go through the finances and you explain university finances. I think in in a, in a fairly straightforward way, as straightforward as one could could make them. And I wanted to ask you about probably one of the more complex parts of a university, which is the endowment. Um, and again, just we've seen certainly in in, in the pandemic times. Many universities, elite uh, universities that have endowments in the in the billions, clinging to their endowments and telling students uh, that they are unable to, you know, access these funds. And I think for a lot of people, they're unclear of what percentage of endowment is actually uh, liquid uh, assets that can be spent to help students or to help faculty members or whatever the case may be. Um, could you just explain generally how sort of? And I know this is a I don't want to make this an overly complicated question because endowments are complex, but certainly how is an endowment working um, at, at most the kind of these uh, universities that have huge uh, multi-billion dollar endowments? Well, just the, the two sentence version of the, of illiquidity is that in order to get high returns, you know, well beyond the growth of the economy, well beyond the growth of wages, and well beyond the growth of just, you know, regular investment vehicles. Uh, they went into, and this is 20 years ago, pioneered by, you know, the fund manager at Yale and some other people. David Swenson is a, you know, sort of the, his name. They um, went into, you know, much more exotic um, vehicles that are harder to buy and sell. So, to know the high returns and illiquidity tend to go together and parts of, you know, and it really varies from endowment to endowment, but big parts of them are not easily sellable and they're, they're more vulnerable, you know, they're vulnerable to downturns um, because of leveraging and other things. So when the market is in flux, they're harder to unload than, you know, when everything is going up. And they're, there is, I guess, a fundamental question, which is kind of unclear, at least at the university level, at, at you know, what is the actual purpose of the endowment? I mean, uh, yeah. I think a, yeah. a lot of people want to think of the endowment as, um, uh, you know, a way to, you know, these wealthy institutions that have billions of dollars that have been growing these endowments, students would like, and perhaps faculty would like to think of the endowment as, a, as insurance against being severely affected by global pandemics or economic downturns. But it seems that university administrators are more interested in the kind of in, in not spending that money on the student body or or, or faculty or things like that. Um, how do you see the, what what purpose do you view the endowment having for a university? Or like, what, what would be the ideal sort of purpose? Well, there's I mean there there are three things, and two of them are not helpful at the moment. One is the you know long term stability of the institution. So they, they have a legitimate interest, you know, the, the fiduciaries of the institution in not just getting, you know, students through the next three or four years, the faculty through the end of their career in 10 or 15 years or whatever it is, but preserving the institution for 50 or hundred years. So that's one thing that's not helpful right now. The other is uh, the size of the endowment is the status of the institution. You know, so, you know, in this kind of financialized neoliberal period that we're in, uh, the, the quality of the institution is 
to a large extent equated with the size of its endowment. And there's a lot of anxiety on the part of an institution like Duke that it doesn't have as much money as an institution like Princeton. And, you know, there's that. Then the third, which you mentioned already, I think is also totally legitimate, which is that it's a, it's insurance for downturns. And uh, there's a struggle there between the people that are not as directly affected and the people who are directly affected by the downturn over whether the money's going to be spent now or safe for later. And those, you know, those are meaningful policy decisions. And the, you know, the only general thing I would say about that is that everybody should be part of that, you know, student organizations, unions, faculty, uh, need to be having a kind of an equitable conversation with real data about how um, assets can be spent to tide over shortfalls. I mean, just, you know, one last piece about this. Uh, public, public universities cannot afford cuts. Um, there's, they were cut, they've been cut repeatedly over the last 30 years, and the last one was really bad. Almost no public institutions have recovered from where they were, but back to where they were uh, in the sort of the mid to late 2000s before that financial crisis. So there's nothing in the way of department funds, extra staff, luxuries to get rid of in order to, you know, to save, you know, six or 10 or 15 percent of the budget. So it's really imperative that both borrowing at today's very low interest rates, I mean, between one and two percent, and then using existing reserves, which include, you know, portions of endowments or funds functioning as endowment, it's imperative to use those to prevent cuts from happening in what's probably going to be a one to three year problem. So if you, you know, if you want to, re, you know, redesign your institution to some extent to make it more effective, that's one thing. Just to start chopping people is grossly ineffective for the institution as well as, you know, profoundly unfair to uh, the people. And, you know, in a, the middle of a pandemic, just ridiculous as public policy. So since the federal government is not doing its job and most states are not doing their job in terms of finding public resources for tidying over, it's up to institutions to do the best they can with the assets they have. And that does, in my view, mean um, fight carving out, you know, bits and pieces of the endowment to get everybody through this. Right. I want to return to to something that I mentioned at the beginning and a central concern of your book is really trying to understand how how we envision what a democracy should be and, and education's relate higher ed's re- relation to it. In your book, you engage directly and argue, I think, very persuasively against some of the common arguments advanced by uh, policymakers and, and university administration <clears throat> regarding the need to incorporate private sector practices into public universities. Uh, just to kind of go over, so this group justifies. Uh, the increased influence of the private sector and, and the exorbitant salaries paid to administration as being the kind of only solution to the, this cost disease, as you call it, of, of higher ed. Um, but so you engage with the arguments on that level, on the purely financial level, but you're also making a larger case for the humanistic benefits of higher education and, and the, the way those affect our the state of our democracy and the health of our democracy. I was wondering if you could just speak about the tension between those two lines of argument, um, the purely monetary ones talking about the the spillover effects, as you mentioned before, but also the harder to pin down humanistic benefits of having a, a an educated society and affordable education. Well, I mean, the, the core problem with the humanistic side of it is just that we've neglected it. For years and years and years. So, I mean, those arguments are there. We're just not as, we're rusty with them. And we have to start really using them again and get back in shape <laughs> and being able to talk about humanistic benefits, um, which I'm happy to do now if you, you know, if there are particular ones that you like to go into. But the other thing I would say just to, in a prefatory way is that the economic and the, um, and the social benefits is kind of how I think about it are in total alignment here. They're only in conflict where, you know, you define economic benefits in terms of sort of plutocratic plutocratic concentration and resource extraction that doesn't benefit the broader 
um, whole of people, either in the university or or in, in society. If you're if you define uh, you know economic um, effectiveness in terms of a broad distribution of of returns and of broad access to a society's resources, uh, then go supporting non-monetary benefits, supporting the, the whole spectrum of effects and investing in all of those is compatible with economic effectiveness. So I, I actually don't, you know, I, I try to emphasize this a bit in the book. I, I don't see any real conflict between uh, economic arguments democratically understood and, or, you know, you know, socialistically understood on the one hand and, uh, the humanistic side on the other. So, I mean, could you may, maybe just talk a little bit about what do you think the, the most Im- important humanistic benefits are in, for the of the university? Well, I th- I think uh, personal uh, development is the core one. In other words, taking um, the you know individuals with their sort of unknown desires for themselves and their lives and their you know, limited uh, abilities to, you know, see their path forward and to also to have the, the means for pursuing that and giving them those things. So, I mean, that, that's I mean, the place that I would kind of, I start is, is building it right in the old German sense. And I, I start there because I don't actually see that as, as private entirely, you know, it, 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 it has a, you know, deep personal and, and private dimensions, but it also is a, um, multiplying that by large, you know, by millions of people um, gives you uh, social benefits that, I mean, I, I don't want to, there's these words that are, development is a problematic word, progress is a problematic word. So we need a new vocabulary for this thing that I'm talking about. But the um, I think the core humanistic benefit is this combination of uh personal and social development that happened more or less at the same time. I wanted to now shift to what you call a philanthrocapitalism. Um, and, you know, obviously this is something that affects uh, both private institutions, private institutions with, with alumni networks, strong alumni networks uh, and alumni who donate to the universities, but also in, in a lot of public universities as well. And you talk in the book about how the, you know, you know, a big part of university funding, sometimes, especially for infrastructural development, I guess, comes from uh, philanthropy. And these donations often have some strings attached. Uh, typically, as you mentioned in the book, uh, it will try to uh, redirect or direct research to specific topics or things that the philanthropist is interested in. And uh, from a broader perspective, this fundamentally affects what universities end up looking into, how they allocate their resources. What do you see as the uh, as a kind of main detriments of this funding model of philanthropists? Well, there's, I mean, there's at least three things. One is that uh, philanthropists give targeted money to issues that they're interested in, and they may or may not be the interested issues that most need working on. So it's a it's a privatization of uh, research development, research foci, because you end up working on things that the donor is interested in, which may or may not be things that you as a researcher think are the most important to work on. So, I mean, one example is is has to do with uh, COVID and public health. You know, I, I don't know of any donors that have given tons of money to the public health or the, even, you know, to the infectious disease area compared to clinical interventions in the kinds of serious illnesses that affect older, you know, wealthier people, you know, cancer and, and other kind of famous, uh, you know, dementia is another one. I mean, these are serious issues, but you don't really want your university to put, you know, 95% of its research into say into dementia and cancer and to the total neglect of infectious diseases and and public health and also preventative medicine, you know, which is something that doesn't have a lot of return on investment at the outset. And so donors are 
less likely to be excited about it. You know, donors often come from the return on investment private sector, right? So they, that's their metric and, you know, that's more where they want to spend their money. Um, a second drawback is, is, is that um, none of this, not only is it targeted to particular areas that may or may not be the highest priority areas for professional researchers, but it's money that is not actually available for operations for the institution. So you could you can get what's been happening in public universities for a long time, which is kind of gated communities of excellence that have uh, much higher levels of resources, you know, like the Beverly Hills School District over here. And then the generals like LA City Unified that surrounds it, having many fewer resources per student over here. And that's... Um, it's unfortunate because it isn't, again, you know, it's unfair to the people that are not in those areas, right? I mean, students shouldn't be penalized because they love philosophy as opposed to loving computer science. But in de facto, they are because the resources in computer science is significantly higher uh, in part because, you know, donations tend to flow to that. Um, but it's also ineffective for the development of an educated population because you are underdeveloping or un, uh, the people that you are under-resourcing in the areas that have no potential uh, to attract funders from the outside. And then the third thing is that's worth mentioning is that donors always leverage institutional funds. So in other words, they don't with very rare exceptions, give 100% of the cost of a building when they get their name on the building. The university has to come up with the balance of the money. So it costs money to get this money. And having a very successful philanthropic operation can also be very expensive to the university that looks like it's getting rich through donors, but which is also spending its money to get those donors at the same time. Yeah, I, I found that to be a really fascinating point that I think more people need to know about. I mean, um, I think some people know about the kind of this that there are strings attached to this donor money, but few realize I think uh, that it also ends up costing the university money. Um, I wanted to talk, return to this topic of kind of inequality, looking at the the ways that inequality is part of uh, the larger higher ed system, but is especially kind of affecting public universities. And this has been uh, in with, let's say with testing. Um, so a lot of private universities, my sense are, are moving away from uh, GE requiring the GRE for their graduate programs. Some schools are going SAT optional, but it's my sense that public universities, it's, it's harder for them to do this perhaps based on uh, the number of apl- applicants having underfunded uh, resources to kind of sift through these applications and they rely on perhaps testing and other metrics as a, as a way to make it more efficient, uh, despite the fact that it reproduces a lot of inequality. How do you, what is your thought on, on that kind of issue of the, some of the main sort of causes of, of inequality at, at the level of sort of testing and these other things that students are required to submit as part of their application? <laughs> well, it, it costs money to, you know, obviously to, take the test, but it really costs a lot of money to get the tutoring you need to do really well on the test. I mean, one of the things that's really happened since I took it, you know, back in the day is that is the growth of this coaching industry. So, you know, there's, I mean, it's kind of an arms race in it, right? So, you know, the people that are getting, you know, what percentage of people that get say 1500 out of 1600 in SAT terms are, um, are actually getting coached. You know, if you want to be in that category, are you there is, is by hiring a coach for $2,000, just the ante into getting that kind of score. You know, so there's a things that, you know, it's gotten more competitive financially on that level in terms of the, like the GRE, you know, I have a research assistant who is studying for the GRE and she basically has been, you know, living with her parents and doing it more or less full time for three or four months. So that's obviously not something that is available to everybody who's um, taking the GRE. And it's, you know, it's a privileged position that discriminates against lower income people, first gen people, et cetera. So I, I, you know, I think it's pretty well established. And this was true 
decades ago that you know SATGRE type standardized tests correlate best with socioeconomic status and not as well with student success, which is what they were always claiming to predict. They don't do a good job of that. So, you know, my university just made SAT optional. And, you know, I, I think that's a trend that's going to continue because it, people are really getting their heads around how discriminatory these tests have been. Yeah. Um, and I know, especially in a lot of graduate programs at public universities, the uh, GRE test scores partially influence the funding packages that students receive. Um, so it's, it, you know, it really can affect the kind of long-term financial stability of a graduate student at a public university and perhaps discourage them uh, from even accepting, uh, you know, uh, a, a position in a, in a program like that. Um, yeah, that's really true. We, we've used it on my campus, and I think this is true pretty much everywhere, too, as a kind of a lingua franca between fields. So basically, like my department of English can only submit high GRE students for central fellowships because they're going to go up only against high GRE students from physics and economics right. and you know the other departments. So to the, if, if we got rid of the, well, we actually, it is, uh, I think it is optional now here. Um, if students really stop submitting those scores, that will make the competition for fellowships qualitative in the way that admissions is already qualitative for grad students in individual departments. And that will be, that will be good. Error. Right. Right. We, we've been talking about the, all the, all the problems that you identify in your book and the, the, so, the so-called devolutionary cycle that, that uh, you outline. I wanted to now shift to some of the solutions uh, that you propose towards the end of the book. I think one of the refreshing parts of the book, despite it, you know, I, I was feeling a bit um, discouraged by, you know, all the problems you identify um, and they're, they're seemingly, uh, you know, impossible to solve, but you do indeed present us with uh, a proposed uh, kind of roadmap of how we might get past some of these problems. So I was hoping you could talk in brief about this general model that kind of you envision. Um, and I, I'm not sure to what extent that relates to the, some other works in critical university studies, if if this is a, a kind of uh, agreed upon set of principles that, that you're kind of uh, working with. Well, I, I think that it starts with developing a political will to save ourselves that we haven't had in the past. You know, it's just, I, you know, there's just been one crisis after another where we think, okay, well, this one, this is going to pass and things will get back to normal. And I, I just don't, it wasn't true in 2008 and it's not true again. I'm hoping the second time people will realize what we, we need to get much more active in you know, much more involved in our own institutions and more involved, I think, on the policy level as well, so that in the case of uh, public universities, we can go back to uh, the kind of the, the, the general funding model that made this system really great in the first place. So I, I mean, one, um, I, get, I think probably that one place to start is with student debt. I mean, this is the this is the problem that I talk about in the book that is widely agreed to be a problem. I mean, Republicans are opposed to debt as well as Democrats. And there's even, you know, sort of national interest in, in uh, debt mitigation of various kinds. You know, Biden has a plan and there are lots of democratic plans for, for debt free college debt remediation or, you know, debt Jubilee, even that, that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren in different ways are putting forward. And Biden's picked up on that. Um, I think Biden's going to win. And so I think that we're looking at a, a much more intelligent national discourse starting next year about basically getting debt-free college as a baseline for everybody so that wealthy people can't buy their way out of a burden that is imposed on everybody of lower means. It's completely unfair. And, you know, obviously, again, ineffective economically as well as as you know, politically and socially. Uh, the next thing I would say is this, that there's, uh, 
really only one way to get debt-free college, and that is to have tuition-free college. Because it, that then allows, you know, more or less 100% of the financial aid resources that we have to go to uh, cost of living coverage rather than, uh, you know, sort of back-channel payments to universities in the form of, you know, tuition that people borrowed in order to to get. So that's... um. I think that that is also going to be on the agenda next year as well, even though Biden's not for that. And a lot of people are very uneasy about it because it seems like you're letting rich people off the hook, you know, free college for Donald Trump's son. And my answer to that is, yes, I do want free college for Donald Trump's son as long as Donald Trump pays his taxes. Right. We should be getting, mm. you know, ec- financial equity out out of the, through the tax system and not through the tuition system that universities apply to a very small subset of the population. So those are the two places I'd start. And then there's, uh, as you know, from, you know, at the end of the book, there's a, there's a cycle of recovery in which each of these steps has implications for others. Uh, and more or less all of those things have to be solved in the same sort of five to 10 year period. The good news is that if we do that, uh, will have a you know massively effective and also completely inclusive, affordable university system for everybody that wants to go to it, and it's not really going to cost the society that much more money than it's spending right now. Um, you know, when, when talking about you know, the the American university system, and especially the you know in the U.S. we have a um, a lot of private universities that are incredibly prestigious and certainly a lot of public universities as well, but um, the kind of elite tend to go to private universities and it's the opposite sort of in, in, in Europe, we see at public universities having, I think the most prestige in many cases, uh, depending on the country we're talking about and, and private universities are still, um, are still, they're not nearly as common and, and tend uh, to be, I think, met with suspicion in some countries sort of buying your way into uh, a university. I'm wondering within critical university studies itself, how useful do you see kind of a transnational approach to the field? I mean, obviously there are serious differences in the the, the way the American, uh, the U.S. is set up on a legal uh, level and the, the way we have a kind of a, a federated um, uh, republic um, and the, the strength of the state's rights and these kinds of things. And much of Europe and the rest of the world has a different system. But to what extent is it useful to look at models in other countries in trying to propose a solution to some of these issues with our public university system? Very useful. I'd like to make this field much more comparative. It's hard to get Americans to buy books about other people's university systems. So the press has been a bit reluctant to really push me in that direction, but we're, we're continuing to talk about broadening it out. Uh, the things that we can learn from other countries are first, don't put your university system under a ministry of education that's centralized. You know, France has done that. And it, you know, it's a very, you know, intellectually intellect positive culture compared to ours particularly, but it's university systems are constantly being messed with by politicians and it's way, it's way too centralized. You know, there's one printing company that prints all of the diplomas for the entire country of France (laughs) And its wow. printer is broken right now. So a postdoc that I was trying to hire over there couldn't actually uh, show proof that he had his PhD to the university that was trying to hire him because the one diploma printer in France was down. So it's like, <laughs> that is not good. Uh, we So the U.S. should be kind of pleased that we have you know more diversity and more decentralization. I think there's a lot of good that the other thing though is that we can learn positively from them is that mostly they're free and they have not had the same problems with you know imposing now two generations of debt on people that are you know going out into the workforce at age 22 with you know the price of a car you know in the hole and then the third thing i think that's really interesting, and at least in some of those countries, is there's a greater proximity between uh, academic knowledge and the society. You know, there's more interaction 
there's more there's more res- sort of interest in and respect for professors or learned people in general. Uh, and what that translates into are just having kind of knowledgeable folks on, uh, you know, on TV. And I mean, it's famously Foucault was on television every night in France for like 20 years. But it's not just Foucault. It's like there's regular people, you know, epidemiologists go on TV to talk about COVID transmission in a paper that they wrote last week. So there's there's that is kind of more familiarity with what universities do. And if we had more of that in the U.S., I think there'd be less uh, suspicion towards them and and more support. Um, We're coming to the end of our time. I want to end with a question about uh, just ask you what you're working on currently. Uh, um, I don't know if it relates to to kind of critical university studies, if you're working on a a different type of project. Well, the next book in this series that I I just uh, have finished with four other people is called metrics.edu. And we're taking the, you know, the normal metrics like selectivity and return on investment that students and their families use to think about college and standing them on their head, either just suggesting they'd be thrown out completely and not replaced by any metrics or suggesting some other metric that would work better. So that's part of it. That's, it's, uh, I have other projects uh, in a project called um, Limits of the Numerical, which is about uh, trying to get wider public understanding as well as you know, professional understanding of qualitative knowledge. You know, what is, what, if it can't be turned into numbers, it's valid anyway. How is it valid? How do we use it if it's, you know, if it's not, you know, essentially sort of data in the, the numerical sense that's become so dominant now? So and I've gotten involved in another lost cause, first universities, <laughs> and, and now humanities knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, I've really enjoyed uh, talking. And again, thanks for taking the time uh, to speak with me. Um, I think it's been really uh, kind of illuminating, especially the kind of financial university finances uh, bit. So thanks again. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.